Uh, we are just a few weeks into a new sermon series in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. I'm always excited about a new series, uh, about getting our arms around a new book of the Bible together. And every book of the Bible serves a unique and divine purpose. But I feel some extra measure of anticipation and excitement with the, the unique book of Acts. I was thinking this week about what we would not have in the Bible if we didn't have the book of Acts. What would we not know if we didn't have the book of Acts? We'd have the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'd know about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We'd get these great commission passages which come at the end of Matthew and Luke and John. But then we'd move straight into a series of books which we call epistles or letters, like the one Paul wrote to Romans. And immediately we'd be barraged with questions Who's this Paul guy writing this letter to the Romans? What's his story? Where'd he come from? And why is he writing a letter to Christians in Rome? Did the gospel already get all the way to Rome? And presumably, if he's writing to Christians in Rome, these are mostly Gentile Christians. This Jesus thing started as a predominantly Jewish thing. And wait a minute, it's not just Romans. Paul's writing letters also to churches in, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Thessalonica, in Philippi. These are, these are Greek metropolises steeped in Roman paganism. There are Christians there in churches there. How did this thing, this predominantly Jewish thing, become a significantly Gentile thing? Why is Paul writing from prison? Why is Peter talking about persecution so much? How is the gospel spreading so successfully with apparent opposition? Well, the book of Acts answers all those questions and many more. Acts tells the story behind the letters that follow in the rest of the Bible. Acts tells the story of the gospel's quick spread and far reach. It tells the story of even the struggle within this Jesus movement for the inclusion of Gentiles without any distinction. It's an important book. Having said all that, we might actually find ourselves occasionally in this book asking another question related to what's in it and what we have with it. We might occasionally find ourselves wondering why Luke recorded this or that story and not others. Acts is selective history, as all history writing is. No historian is omniscient or could put everything down. So Acts spans decades, but gives us only snippets and snapshots. It records some sermons, but leaves thousands out. It records some prayers, but no doubt leaves thousands out. It records some church meetings and decisions, but leaves thousands outside of it. So why these? We might say, why this one? And take, for example, our passage today in the second half of Acts 1. Why this? I suspect that nowhere in Acts are we more tempted to ask questions like I just asked? Luke, why would you tell us this story and not another? Why not skip ahead to this big thing that you have us all waiting for in the story? We've all heard of that phrase of movie makers that sometimes they need to cut to the chase. Maybe a producer goes too long, is too patient in his storytelling, and an editor will need to cut to the chase scene, which is exciting. And in Acts, there is indeed a chase scene, you could say, coming, a massively climactic moment in chapter 2. And that's where we left off last week, waiting for this to come. We're on the cusp of a really big moment. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. The Spirit is coming with fire. It's the promise from the Father. It is power from on high. The Spirit's arrival will mean God-infused supernatural boldness to, G to, 
to be Jesus' witnesses to the world. That's what's coming. It's coming soon. And then Jesus left. And yet Luke still does not cut to the chase. There's the wait. It's a 10-day wait, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. 10 days between Jesus' ascension and when the Spirit comes in Acts 2. Our passage shows the disciples waiting in an upper room. It tells us that they prayed. That's understandable enough. We're glad Luke told us that while they waited, they didn't play sorry and shoots and ladders and monopoly. They, they prayed. But then in the rest of our passage today, chapter 1, verse 15 and following, there's one little snippet or scene within the 10-day wait, and that's the head-scratcher for us. That's the curious move of history writing. So let me read our verses for us this morning and see if you, like me, at least at first read, find yourself asking, Luke, why did you need to tell us this? Why is this so important? Might you not have been served by a scrutinizing editor who said, uh, cut this, cut to the chase? Here it is, Acts 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then Luke supplies a, a historical comment in parentheses. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. In falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Elkeldama, that is, field of blood. And now back to Peter's speech among the 120. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, another quotation, let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the days when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas had turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." Well, the bare facts are simple enough. Judas, one of the 12 apostles, betrayed Jesus, killed himself, and left a void on the team of 12. So Peter here suggests filling the vacancy with someone uh, who all, is also a legitimate witness to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They settle on two qualified men, and then they cast lots. Uh, to settle on a final one, and it lands on Matthias. But who's Matthias? Matthias wasn't mentioned any time before this. And Matthias gets no mention after this. This is his one moment in the biblical spotlight. Why is he here? Why bother telling the story, Luke? Do you even need to replace Judas? Why is this speech and Matthias' appointment the one window, other than prayer, the one window into what the disciples were doing during this 10-day wait before the Spirit came and the mission began? Well, I will answer all those questions at the end of the sermon. 
You're just going to have to wait. In the spirit of Luke not cutting to the chase, I'm not going to cut to the chase and answer those questions yet. You'll have to wait. That's what Jesus' disciples do. They wait. You don't have to wait 10 days, though. Notice Jesus' disciples here obey. They wait. They get together and they pray. They wrestle with the Bible to make sense of what happened. They look to the Bible to see what to do next. And they trust that Jesus is still at work bringing his plan to pass no matter what. That's how we can summarize this chapter. Or we could reduce it to three things. Three things that we see these early disciples doing here in the upper room. Number one, they're waiting with prayer. Waiting with prayer, verses 12 to 14. This is the part of the story that's simple enough to understand, but it is profound in its model and example to us. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait. It's coming. He didn't say, the Spirit's coming if you pray. He didn't say, make sure you pray hard enough so that the Spirit comes. And yet they prayed because their Lord had taught them to pray. He had shown them to pray, like for big events especially, as he prayed in the garden that night before his arrest. Jesus told them the Spirit would come, and then they would be his worldwide witnesses, but wait, and they prayed. That's not always my first instinct when I have to wait. I sometimes pull out my phone, I sometimes will find something else to do. I busy myself, but they prayed. I, I might have strategized. I might have tried to lead a, a plan for the looming task ahead of worldwide evangelism. I would have said, all right, we've got a big task ahead of us. Let's plan this out. There's only 120 of us. There are only 11 apostles. Let's do groups of 11 or so in 11 groups. Here, here's a map of Jerusalem. Let's put you guys here and you here and you here and let's put preaching posts out there. Uh, let's go door to door. Maybe that would be the strategy. But they don't do any of that. Not that planning and strategizing for ministry is always wrong. It's just curious that they don't do that here. Instead, their instinct is to pray. You wonder how they actually could do anything else in light of what has been going on in their lives over the last month or so. They're gathered together with Mary, who is there at the cross, just feet away from her son being slaughtered. The brothers of Jesus are now there as well. You'll remember that both mom and the brothers of Jesus at one time in the not-too-distant past were actually embarrassed of Jesus. In Mark 3, they leave home and they go find Jesus to, 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 shh, to shush him and, and to bring him back home. It's a bit of a spectacle. But not only has Mary come to believe that her son is the son of God and son of man, but apparently after the resurrection, the brothers as well They've been changed, and they're there together with reassembled apostles who have seen so much. They're there in the upper room, the upper room. Now, this may not be the same upper room as the famous upper room where the Last Supper took place, but it, but it may be. It may not be. Upper rooms weren't that rare in Jerusalem houses, but, but it's possible Likely, perhaps, because there's a bit of a clue, I think, that Luke gives us. You see, when Luke, in his gospel account, speaks of an upper room where Jesus told his guys to get the Passover meal ready, it's just that. It is an upper room. No definite article. An upper room, like a basement. But here, when you get to Acts 1, uniquely, Luke says they were in the definite article, upper room, perhaps to give away that this is the famous upper room of that momentous night of the Last Supper and the first Lord's Supper, that place where Jesus predicted his death and, and told them that it was for them that he was dying. He also foretold that he would be betrayed by one of them. He dipped his bread in the wine and handed it to Judas. And Judas got up and left, never to return. They only saw him again when he came to betray his master with a kiss. That room, 
If they're back in that room, you can imagine what powerful, fresh memories are swarming their brains. And so they prayed. This is a significant moment. This is, it's a staggering moment when we think of how much Bible was right there swelling into this place and was about to crash like a tidal wave. A tidal wave had already crashed on the shore of history when Jesus came, was born, he lived, he he died and was raised and he ascended. That is a major crash of a tidal wave that's already happened and another tidal wave is about to break forth and they are imminently uh, in, in experiencing the moment. That moment is coming, as I said, as we'll see next week, when the Spirit comes. God had promised in the Old Testament one day His Spirit would come and would enliven and indwell and empower His people in a radically new way. But you also have in the Old Testament these promises about God's people one day being worldwide witnesses for him. And that was another wave that was about to crash with the Spirit's coming. So let's just get this in our minds. If you would, turn back with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43. So we can see this Old Testament, oft-repeated promise of witnesses going to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 43, this is 700 years before the death and resurrection of Jesus. And through Isaiah, God says, Isaiah 43, verse 6, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Verse 8, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, the peoples assemble. And then verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. So God's servant, Jesus, and his witnesses will witness to and gather from the ends of the earth. Look at Isaiah 49, just one more in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, in verse 5, God says he's going to bring Jacob back. That's Israel. Israel will be gathered to him. But then verse 6, Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's too little of a thing for you to think of Jerusalem or the Jewish people. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth that salvation would reach the nations. This is what Acts 1 8, which Tom showed us last week. This is what Acts 1.8 has in view. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is how Luke's gospel account ends. Let's remind us of that, even though we saw it a couple weeks ago. Again, look at Luke 24. There Jesus tells the disciples that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he says, thus it is written. Here's what has to get fulfilled. Number one, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise. That had already happened at that point. And number two, thus it is written, this has to happen. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. That was what was about to start. That stuff they had heard from Jesus in recent days. And this was no doubt filling their minds and driving their prayers a lot has changed since those 10 days in Jerusalem 
from then to now, 2,000 years later. A lot has changed. The Spirit has come. And that changes everything. The gospel's gone forth. Praise God. And yet, not a whole lot has changed. God's people today wait on Jesus to act. They get together in unified, devoted prayer. They look to his word. They talk about it together. It's what the people did in the upper room as they waited. It's what, in some ways, we're doing this morning as well. And yet there in that upper room, though there's this beautiful, peaceful, unified prayer scene described for us in general, I wonder if there might have also been an elephant in the upper room. I don't know for sure, but you wonder. It seems to me like Peter stood up and started speaking amidst the prayer meeting in order to address what might have been an elephant in the room, that being Judas. That whole Judas thing. What the heck happened there? I mean, have they talked about it together? I don't know. There's no record of Jesus talking to them about the Judas thing, the Judas debacle. Maybe they're trying to make sense of it, and Peter's leading the way. So secondly, they're waiting in prayer, number one. Number two, they're making sense of betrayal. Making sense of betrayal. Peter stood up among the brothers, and he takes God's word to bear on the situation. He, he takes two psalms of David in order to make sense of the Judas thing. And notice what he emphasizes, verse 16, is that the scripture had to be fulfilled. That what the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand was about Judas. God is sovereign. He's in control. The whole Judas affair was no accident. Their master did not mess up in picking him. Judas's betrayal was heinous, but it doesn't invalidate or harm the, the Savior, the plan, the mission, the gospel. Remember at Jesus' betrayal and arrest, that scene there in the garden after Peter had swung his sword at one of the guards, Jesus stopped him and said, Peter, all this has to happen that the scriptures would be fulfilled. The betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, this has to happen that the scriptures would be fulfilled. In John 13, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples and, and blessed them, he then qualified it. He said, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Quoting from Psalm 41 and no doubt applying it to Judas. Or in John 17, there when Jesus prayed <clears throat> for his disciples, he said, Father, you've given them to me, and I've kept them, and I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture would be fulfilled. Can you imagine Jesus saying that without those last words at the end about scripture? Father, you've given them to me. I've kept them. I've guarded them. I didn't lose a one, except one. I did lose one. He's lost. I lost him, Father. I couldn't keep him. I, I blew it. Well, no, he doesn't say any of that. He was a son of destruction. He was among the 12 whom Jesus chose. But all this was that the scriptures would be fulfilled. The Judas thing was heinous, but it was God's plan. Now, we probably shouldn't skip over the first part of that when I say that sentence. The Judas thing was heinous but it was God's plan. It was heinous. It was treacherous. Probably most of us in this room don't give much thought to Judas's betrayal. We think it was necessary. We know where the plan was going. The cross was pretty darn important. We're glad Jesus went to the cross. And so, sure, thanks, Judas, for getting them there, and we're glad for that. But you might not even be remotely embarrassed by the Judas 
thing, his betrayal or his suicide, as though it's a, a blemish on our faith. But, but just put yourself in the sandals of the 11 who saw all this go down. There probably is some wrestling with this. There's some sting involved, and there's a fresh wound here. Their friend, their co-apostle, their brother-apostle, Judas, with them from the beginning. For three years, they were together, eating together, sleeping together. Judas was entrusted with the money, so he wasn't this shady dude, you know, the one weird guy of the 12 who no one trusts and assumes he's going to go someday, just a matter of time. No, they trusted him with the money bag. Judas had heard and seen all the same things as the other 11, the miracles, the teachings, the healings, the feedings. And then one day he just gave up on Jesus. That would be bad enough to give up on Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, God in the flesh. He didn't just give up on Jesus. He gave him up. He betrayed him in view of execution. He knew where this was going. He knew what he was doing when he, that night in the garden, went and kissed the Savior's cheek in betrayal. I did some reading this week on betrayal in ancient cultures. It was helpful. I didn't know till this week that betrayal in ancient Greco-Roman cultures and, and Judaism as well in the time of the Bible. For them, betrayal, especially betrayal from a friend, even more so a friend with whom you had shared meals, fellowship, friendship, oneness, Betrayal for someone like that was considered one of the most wicked, treacherous things you could do. It was punishable by death. And as you read through the gospel accounts from very early on in these gospel accounts, whenever Judas's name is mentioned, the gospel writers can't seem to write Judas without saying the betrayer right after it. You almost never find Judas's name bare by itself even before he's ever betrayed Jesus or planned the betrayal. He's Judas, the betrayer, or Judas, the one who would betray him. I don't interpret that as unresolved bitterness by his fellow disciples, but, but it is a guarded sobriety. And if God is not sovereign, and if he doesn't have scriptural purposes for the betrayal uh, from Judas, then you've got to wonder, did Jesus blow it? Can't he keep his guys in line? Doesn't Jesus pick winners? Shouldn't Jesus have seen it coming? But he did see it coming. It was the plan all along, and scripture has it recorded for us. Jesus is in a long line of righteous sufferers who suffer at the hand of silly, wicked people under the sovereignty of God and for the purposes of God. And God will be vindicated every time. In the end, eventually. So King David is a perfect example of this. And that's why it's an easy go-to for Peter. He refers to Psalm 69, the first of two Bible quotes. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So David in Psalm 69 is saying this about some fierce opponents. We don't know which one. Maybe Absalom his son. Maybe Ahithophel the traitor. We don't know. But David is saying, let their wickedness come to an end. Let there be futility on the other side of this, Lord. Make the wicked desolate. Put an end to their treachery. Vindicate me. Bring their wickedness and that of their offspring to a halt. Now that is fittingly applied to the Jesus and Judas situation. In fact, Psalm 69, four or five times in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus, starting with Jesus, who gives the very first quote from Psalm 69, zeal for my father's house will consume me. So Jesus pins Psalm 69 on himself, and Peter follows suit. He applies David's words to Judas, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. 
And remember, this comes from Peter right after he said, this had to happen, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So just like the betrayal and the blood money, the actual number of silver coins, it had to be fulfilled. So with Judas's ruin and desolation, it had to be fulfilled. And that's why Luke emphasizes the shame and goriness of Judas's death. Verse 18, the man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So that place became famous for the field of blood. Just don't go there. A, a, a nasty... Uh, uh, place where you put dead bodies. What are those called? Cemetery. Cemetery. Yeah, that's it. Cemetery. That's what it was. That's what it came to be known after Judas killed himself there. In Matthew 27, we find a, the same telling in a different way of Judas's death. It's different than Acts 1, but not inconsistent. They can go together. In Matthew 27, we read that Judas you know, gave back the 30 pieces of silver. And it was actually the, the priests who bought the field. They didn't want to put this blood money back in the priestly coffer. So they, they bought a field with this 30 pieces of silver. Um, Luke in Acts 1 sort of shortens that and says he required a fee, acquired a field. But in God's mysterious providence, that was the field where Jesus, Judas hanged himself. And apparently he hung there dead for some time and swelled from decomposition. And perhaps the branch broke or the rope snapped or someone cut him down. But then he fell and he burst open guts and all. It was a shameful life and it was a shameful death. No one around, gore to the max. And not, in Luke's telling of it, not for fun, not, not, not gore for drama's sake, but to portray the utter desolation and ruin of Judas, which was God's vindication. God will be vindicated. He will not be mocked. He is not threatened. The plan of God for his anointed king and for our salvation cannot be derailed or detoured. Judas is no black eye. Not his betrayal, not his suicide, not his spilled guts, not his shame. None of it's a black eye on Jesus or his followers or the mission or the message. It was the plan all along. Scripture had to be fulfilled, and it was. So Peter makes sense of the betrayal. And then third, he is securing apostolic witness. Peter quotes from another psalm, the second half of verse 20, and he applies it, and that's what leads us to this third point, securing apostolic witness. In the second quote, he quotes from Psalm 109, verse 8, another psalm of David, and he takes just one sentence, let another take his office. He's saying this too must be scripture that has to be fulfilled. In other words, Judas has to be replaced among the 12. Now you might wonder, is Peter doing good Bible interpretation of Psalm 109, where there David talks about certain enemies just needed to go? Maybe, again, maybe it was, maybe it was Ahithophel. He needs to go. Let another take his place, Lord. May he be replaced. Is Peter justified in taking that in applying it to the Judas apostolic vacancy? Well, I think he is. We know that that's right because it's Scripture. That might sound like circular reasoning to you, but we Christians are okay with that, at least on this point. We believe the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. And so this is right. This is the right way to handle God's word because Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records it for us and doesn't give any indication that Peter was out of his mind when he used Psalm 109 right here. But we also know that Jesus taught his disciples to read the Bible in this radically Jesus-centered way. 
He had just days ago told them from Luke 24. He'd said, the whole Old Testament, Moses, Psalms, prophets, it's all about me. And then he opened his mind to understand the scriptures. So here's Peter putting that to use, taking Psalm 109 and applying it to Jesus. And he can do so particularly because it's a psalm of David. And David is that great promised king of the Old Testament, of whom Jesus was the even greater promised son of God and, and king of Israel and the world. So there's a theological connection. The old stories of God's king, like King David, and him suffering and suffering righteously they're played out again with even greater detail and contrast and vibrancy and truth and significance in the life of the son of David, the son of God. So David is right in Psalm 109 to lament unrighteous opposition. He's not wrong to pray. May another take his office, Lord. And Peter sees here the same old story played out again, now with even greater significance. Because if Ahithophel is taken out by the Lord and another needs to take his spot, then it's also true that if Judas falls from his spot, Another needs to fill that place. But you might question that. You might question, do, do they really need to fill Judas's place? What's, what's so important about 12? Why, why not 11? Is Peter just OCD? You know, 12 is a dozen. You're almost to 12. We can't go with 11. It's a prime number. It makes me twitch. Can we please get to 12? It's not that. You might be thinking an argument against Peter's advice would be, it's never going to be the same, Peter. You're just being nostalgic here. You know, a new guy will not get us back to what it was. Van Halen with Sammy Hagar is no good. Right? Fill-ins are never what they used to be. You could also wonder, well, why not 13? Later on, there are going to be two guys who meet the qualifications, and both are considered, why not 13? Why not both of them? That's, that's the way it would work in our eldership. Hey, we should have another elder. How about two? They're both equally qualified. We would say, yup, two. But not here. 13 won't do. Peter's stuck on 12. And he's not alone. In the gospel accounts, and in Acts, and in the epistles, we see, this, we see this phrase about the apostles, they're the twelve. The twelve. More than being called apostles, they're called the twelve. And then Revelation 21 puts a cap and seals all of this with so much clarity. Here, in Revelation 21... John sees a new heaven and a new earth in eternity's future, and there there's still memory of and praise to God for 12 tribes of the Old Testament, 12 apostles of the new. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, John says. And then the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So that's why 12. 12 of the Old Testament, 12 of the New. Jesus chose 12, not accidentally, not coincidentally, but purposefully and symbolically. Because with these 12, Jesus was beginning a new movement. He was regathering the people of God. He was reconstituting a new Israel to be made up of Jew and Gentile with his gospel as the center. So in Jesus forming the team of 12, there's continuity with the old covenant. There was 12. There wasn't 13. There are 12 Jewish guys. This message was going to go to the Jews first, then to the Greek, from Jerusalem, but not stay in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. 
So there's something new about what Jesus came to bring and to do. He didn't say, guys, remember the whole 12 tribes thing? You've gotten a little out of order, okay? Let's, let's get these guys over here and you here and come on, everyone back to your tribe. That's what I came to do. No. He didn't come to fortify the Jerusalem city. He didn't come to kick the Romans out. He came to start something new with the mission of the gospel at the center beginning with these 12 guys as a new foundation. So listen to Ephesians 2, which tells us the apostles were foundational. Ephesians 2, Paul says, Your fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, that is the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So how were the apostles, the twelve, a foundation for the church? Well, come back next week and we'll see from Acts 2, one really key example of how the apostles were the foundation of the church. Or you can simply look down at verse 21 of chapter 1 at the qualifications needed for Judas' replacement. They need a man who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. From the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Can I get a witness? That's what Peter says. Can I get a witness? We need another witness. He's securing apostolic witness. Jesus chose 12 one left his share. He was numbered among the 12. That's Peter's language here. He abandoned his post. No worries. Scripture had to be fulfilled. And he is now desolate and God is vindicated. But Scripture also had to be fulfilled. Let another take his place. And so we got to get to 12. That number represents what Jesus intended from the beginning. He was regathering and reconstituting the people of God, starting with 12 who saw it all. The healings, the compassion, the normal everyday humanness. Jesus sleeping in a boat in a storm and then stilling the waves. They needed another man who'd not just seen the resurrection, though that is where it's going. That's sort of the ultimate of things to witness to. But, but someone who can make sense of the resurrection because they've been around for the teachings. They heard the predictions. They saw the cross, though from afar, but they saw it. They saw him not only risen, but ascended. Nothing secondhand. No hand me down stories here. No telephone game with these guys. There's one other qualification for an apostle. Not just that they've been with Jesus during all of his ministry, but they have to be chosen by Jesus directly. And that's why they cast lots. They cast lots. It's like rolling a stone, perhaps, that had maybe two names on it in this case, or, or maybe it's two names in a bag, and you pull one of them out. They had two guys, both legitimately qualified, and they want Jesus to decide which one it is. They prayed, Lord, show us which one of these two you have chosen, past tense, you have chosen to take this place. This is an old way of letting God decide. Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. It shows confidence in God's sovereignty over small detail. Small detail, like the bouncing of dice, and big detail, like the betrayal of the Son of God. Just as a side note here, if you have a view of God's sovereignty that indicates he's sovereign over big things and not little things, then the casting of lots makes no sense here. There's a great book by A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy. Great, except for one horrible illustration. Read it, and when you get to this illustration, make sure you write nope in the side there. You'll need to. 
He says God's sovereignty and his plan is like this. A ship is headed to Liverpool. That's God's plan. It's headed to Liverpool. But when you're on the ship, you can go play shuffleboard. You can, you can throw up over the deck if you want. You can, you can go back to your cabin. And God isn't concerned with the smaller details. But you're going to Liverpool. Well, no, we have a God who's sovereign over hairs of our head. Beats of our heart. Casting of lots. He's sovereign down to the molecule. Now you might wonder then, is this a good way to decide things today? If we get one of those eight balls, magic eight balls, the answers for us. If you have two girlfriends and you're ready to propose to one of them, you might be wondering, should I just roll the dice? Not so fast. This probably isn't a good way to decide ordinary things today. It's not normative. This is the last time it's actually found in the Bible. And throughout Acts, you see other means being used. Sometimes the Spirit just directly directs people, don't go there, go there. And then other times, more common, you see just decision-making language. They concluded that they should. They decided to, it seemed good to, etc., that's usually how decisions are made. Consulting with wiser people than you, making sure it's not prohibited by God's word, seeing what doors Lord, the Lord opens and closes. Your desires are one of the ways you decide what to do. Casting of lots is special in this situation because Jesus had ascended to heaven and yet he had chosen all the 12 personally before. They want him to choose the one. And he chose Matthias for some reason. We don't know why. But he chose Matthias and this was the right one. He was the 12th. Now, that doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul, yes, I said Apostle Paul, was not an apostle. He was an apostle, just a different kind. He doesn't meet this qualification. He wasn't with Jesus from the beginning. He was killing Christians until he saw the risen Lord. He saw the risen Lord. That's good. That's a mark of his lower A apostleship. But there's something special about these 12 guys who were with him from the beginning who can connect all the dots on a first-hand level. They are the sent ones. That's what apostle means with a capital S. We Christians today are also sent. They are the witnesses with a capital W. Though we today are still to witness for Jesus. But if you want a summary of their role, you just look to Ephesians 2. They were part of the foundation of the church. Look to Revelation 21. In heaven, there are 12 names of 12 apostles written on foundation stones. You want to see what importance the apostles had? Look to the rest of your New Testament. It's all built on them. It's all built on, on their observation and experience. You want to see why apostles are important? Well, look around this room. It's because they saw him, they heard him, they wrote it down, they told others, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. The church of Christ here in Acts 1 was a small but sure thing. This was a small but sure beginning. Twelve apostles, 120 disciples. And here we are today on the other side of the globe, 2,000 years later, worshiping Jesus, believing in him, joining the mission, proclaiming him, because the plan all along was that it would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and it continues to go today. So why did Luke put this here in Acts 1? Well, to show us the essential foundational role of the apostles. To also provide for us certainty about what he wrote, especially in Luke, about the life of Jesus. Remember, he leans heavily on eyewitnesses. He also provides validity 
to what the apostles will do in the rest of Acts. This is what Jesus did through them. He also writes and includes this story here at this point to teach us that this Jesus thing was unthwartable. The gospel is unhindered. Even treacherous Judas was no threat. That had to be fulfilled. That was the plan all along, and so was his replacement. He's doing something new. He's reconstituting the people of God, starting with gospel witnesses to the world. And the gospel goes forth, and it continues to spread, and that's why we, we give to missions. That's why we send some of our favorite people off to faraway places that are sometimes potentially dangerous for Christians. The gospel's got to go forth. But don't worry. A Judas can't wreck this train or get us off track. Nothing can. Nothing can stop Jesus. And so we can trust Jesus to keep on doing what he's been doing. We can trust Jesus with this church. We can trust Jesus with our souls. We can trust Jesus with success in the mission. We pray for faithfulness and strive and encourage faithfulness in gospel witness, in godly living. But we can't affect change. But he can. He's proven it over and over and over again in the Bible and ever since the Bible has been closed. And if this Jesus is this sovereign, this in control, this sure, his plan is this solid, then we can trust him with our lives, not just his church, not just the gospel, but our circumstances, tomorrow, our kids, our jobs, with everything. Let's pray for his help to trust him more. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray for those who are with us this morning who haven't yet come to believe that in your death and resurrection there is offered the forgiveness of sins, canceling of debt, restoration to the God that we've gone against and gone astray from. And we pray, Lord, you would give faith. We pray this morning some would come to believe in the gospel of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins because eyewitnesses long ago wrote down what they saw and what they heard and it is a sure and true witness. We believe that. Help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to grow in our confidence in your plan, in your character, in your promises, in what you have done, in what you said you will do. Lord, give us surety in our hearts and in our minds, and may that shape our plans for the future. We thank you for this specific local church, Lord. We thank you for our time together this morning in song and in prayer and in your word. Continue to grow us, continue to send us, continue to use us, and we pray you'd use us more. We thank you for your blood-bought, Holy Spirit-filled church, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.